This is the Eclipse Viewer Podcast, Episode 56, Post-War Kurosawa, Part 1. Hello, everybody. My name is David Blakesley. I'm joined, as always, by Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. Good morning, David. Good morning. Yes, we are getting a little earlier start than usual on our Saturday morning routine. And speaking of good morning, I'm just coming off of a uh, kind of a week spent uh, reviewing and thinking about Ozu's Ohio or Good Morning. And uh, we are, uh, you know, definitely in the afterglow of a nice criterion upgrade of one of Ozu's most uh, wonderful films. And, and uh, we will be getting to Ozu in that period of his career in the relatively near future. But today, we are here to talk about uh, uh, Ozu's rival slash friend uh, slash uh, you know, compatriot in the uh, golden age of classic Japanese cinema, the one and only Akira Kurosawa. Uh, this is the first of a two-part series we're going to be doing on the uh, Eclipse Series 7, post-war Kurosawa. We're going to be talking about the first three films in that box set, No Regrets for Our Youth, one wonderful Sunday and scandal. Uh, Trevor, what do you think? Uh, we are we are kind of a kind of approaching the uh, the destination that we've been thinking about for a while, talking about for a while, uh, and this is the big one. Uh, this is the most popular Eclipse series box out there, at least as far as we can tell based on statistics available to us. Uh, Post War Kurosawa is the one that is. Uh, the most frequently included on people's lists. It's the one that's often mentioned when you get the occasional post on Facebook. I'm new to the Eclipse series. Where do I start? And uh, post-war Kurosawa is one of those perennial suggestions that people familiar with Eclipse uh, will throw out there just because of the magnitude of the director and and even the films themselves. So, uh, yeah, how are you doing with this set? We've uh, have had a chance to watch a lot of different Japanese films, a lot of different movies, but here we are on post-war Kurosawa? Well, I come with mixed, uh, kind of mixed emotions. On the one hand, I'm really excited to finally be here. We've, we've always known this was probably going to be one of our final episodes. Um, and these are films I've, I've never seen before. Um, I've seen almost all of Kurosawa's movies, um, but the ones that were in the Eclipse set uh, before we started. So when we did the first films of Akira Kurosawa, those that was the first time I'd watched any of those. And uh, I kind of saved these as well. And, you know, so it's exciting to be here, but also the, uh, we're almost done. I mean, this that's that's not a, a great thought. I, I've enjoyed this so much. And, uh, you know, I know that we're not ever going to be officially done until the day Criterion says the Eclipse line is dead. <laughs> they haven't right. said that yet. But, um, but trending, it, it looks like they're only going to, to drip out once every so often if they even continue to drip out. So so because of that it's a little bit sad to be here as well, but but this it's kind of a celebration. I mean, these the, I went through the my criterion um numbers again as I've done in in the past and post-war Kurosawa um since I last checked in November um, has now got into more than 1,000 of those My Collection items on Criterion's site. It's the only Eclipse series to be above 1,000. Um, when I first started doing that, it, it was it was the number one set, and it's continued to sell, you know, or at least people have continued to add it to their collections. So um, pe- people people enjoy it, and I think it deserves the reputation. I mean, this is this is a great time for 
um, Kurosawa's work, which we'll, we'll get into some of the ones that are surrounding the films that are in this Eclipse set, some of the bigger titles that Criterion has released in standalone releases. But it's also an, a, a very important and interesting thematic time because by post-war Kurosawa, Criterion doesn't simply mean movies that he made after the war they they mean movies that he made after the war that are related to the war that are that kind of show post-war japan in that in that um early aftermath and how kurosawa was exploring the the, the trek through that time period and some of the the struggles and the the desire to move on and to to you know have some kind of penance but also to 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 kind of begin to thrive again and to and to care and to love and and these films explore a lot of that amidst the rubble in the streets and so it's it's just a it's a great set for many reasons and um and the movies are themselves not too shabby so <laughs> you know sometimes i think people think the the eclipse series are the off the beaten track because they're lesser films and yeah sometimes that's probably the case and that may even be the case with these that these aren't um his his masterpieces necessarily from that time period but they're not far from them and they're certainly worth discussing they certainly have a lot of intrinsic value just in and of each individual self uh, each individual movie and so I'm excited to give them their due and go through this discussion with you. Excellent. Yeah, and I, I agree with pretty much every point you made there is that we are really telling the story of Japan's uh, rebuilding, uh, their uh, redemption even after a you know, thoroughly tragic, tumultuous era. Uh, and as I think about you know where this, this set ranks among other Eclipse series offerings, you know, the uh, Kenoshita uh, during World War II set where we were really kind of following Japan's descent and, you know, eventual emergence from the the abyss of the war years. Uh, of course, those first films of Akira Kurosawa themselves were shot right during, you know, the years of the World War II or the Pacific War. Uh, and then I think about the... Uh, the uh, uh, Mizuguchi films, uh, especially the latter two in that Mizuguchi's Fallen Women set that are also set in the same time frame. Uh, there's the Kobayashi set, which is kind of, a lot of those films kind of parallel the, the track, maybe a little bit later, uh, but sort of the emergence of another generation. So really, you know, you, you do have a very impressive uh, archive of of Japanese cinema during a very, uh, you know, crucial, formative period in that in that nation's history and uh, just a real glimpse into the the kind of the struggles and the tragedies and the occasional small-scale triumphs of ordinary people living through extraordinary times you know and let me and, yeah, go ahead let, let me throw in one sure. of the other ones um the travels with hiroshi shimizu yeah, the pre-war which, uh, Japan, yeah. pre-war so you've got if if you want them and i would recommend this you've got a great look at at this period um progressing up to the war in the war and post-war through those sets and those are they're among my absolute favorite sets and the hiroshi shimizu and the post er, and the um Kinoshida set are probably my two favorites. And by the way, folks, 
when I went through the my criterion on those, they are doing abysmally and they don't deserve that. Oh, so yeah, anyone who's, who's kind of uh, jumping in here and listening to this post-war Kurosawa set because it's the one you bought, you, you won't go wrong buying the Shimizu set and the Kenoshida set. Um, they're, they're lovely, poignant, beautiful, really just powerful sets that, um, that lead up beautifully to this post-war Kurosawa set. Yes, and of course, you know, much of the credit for the popularity of this box does go to the man himself, uh, Akira Kurosawa, whose career is practically unparalleled. I mean, you know, as much as we will, you know, make the case for Ozu and and you know, say, hey, Mizuguchi did amazing things, and and, and don't forget Kobayashi, and what about the, all the Japanese New Wave and Oshima and Suzuki and Kurosawa? Really, I mean, he remains to me a standalone character in in japanese cinema and by extension world cinema uh, his films uh you know really hit a note uh with a with a western audience with a japanese audience with a global audience uh, and of course he's probably best known most famous for those uh you know historic samurai epics uh even in the later part of his career things like uh, ron and kagamusha where he you know did the big full budget you know color epic spectaculars uh some of his greatest films is still in black and white still filmed right around the era of the movies that we're going to be talking about this week and our next episode where we covered the final two uh the idiot and i live in fear uh you know the two films from more like the mid 50s that uh we'll be talking about uh, next time we get together uh you know, we're talking about Rashomon, we're talking about Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, uh, on and on. Yeah, even even the other contemporary dramas, uh, Ikiru, uh, Stray Dog, Drunken Angel, the films that kind of fit in the middle here. I mean, they, they all really hit very high marks. Uh, and uh, people who are fans of genre, people who are fans of adventure, people who uh, recognize that Kurosawa, as influenced as he was by you know American directors like John Ford and Frank Capra and and, and others, uh, also was a great influence on many others. Of course, uh, there's the Hidden Fortress, and it's you know kind of legendary by now. Connection to Star Wars, and so there's so many avenues, so many inroads into who is this Kurosawa guy and and his movies? Yeah, you know, what made him so great, and 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 what was he all about, and and how did he just you know you know, kind of uh, attract great actors like Toshiro Mifune and Takashi Shimura and, uh, oh my gosh, what's who's the other guy? I'm forgetting. Uh, Tatsuya Nakadai. So, you know, these, these these iconic actors, these these great situations, these, these you know, just epic movements and adventures and, and humor and violence and and uh, struggle and, and all, all those elements are just so prominent in the work of Kurosawa. And uh, he's a beloved figure. He's a great personality, you know, uh, you know, a, a painter, an artist, uh, and, and a genius of cinema. And uh, and so, yeah, it, it is kind of like an Ingmar Bergman, where almost like you know, anything he does is of interest because it's it, it's emerged from his his genius, his gift, his talents. And so, this box set, even though it maybe doesn't have some of the the historic sweep or the rollicking adventure. Uh, it does feature some of the, the great faces and, and actors of, of, of 
1950s Japanese cinema, uh, you're going to see Shimura, you're going to see Mifune, Setsuko Hara makes a couple of appearances in this set. So uh, the, the elements are there, but it, it does take us into less familiar territory. And uh, and because of that, I think this is a this is this is a very worthy set to be the best seller. If you got to pick one, why not post war AK? Right. Yep, I agree with you. Um, and and you're right about all those those other those other reasons to buy it too. I mean, uh, but hopefully they they work a little bit in the reverse. And when you get Setsukohara, you know, you look at the, all the other films that she's been in as well. You get into the Ozu. Um, it's just this this is this is what brings most of us to film in the first place is, is is movies of someone like Akira Kurosawa and and you're right anything he does is interesting um if he had stopped with these films and this was all that he ever made we probably wouldn't know him anymore you know yeah he'd be a niche director from an yeah. interesting period in Japan but he went on to such spectacular heights uh, really especially right after the cutoff point of where we're going to be wrapping things up today. Uh, Rashomon followed immediately after um, uh, Scandal, the third film that we're going to kind of discuss. So maybe we should just get into that. But, uh, you know, the, the, these are really setting the stage. So uh, even a little bit like we talked about with uh, Julien de Vivier kind of jumping back to France for a minute, uh, some of those earlier films and that, a very excellent set were indicative of a director who was, you know, still kind of, you know, building towards greater things. And I think the the films that we talked about with Aaron and Mark, uh, La Belle Equipe especially, uh, kind of were those greater things. But here you see Kurosawa experimenting, uh, sometimes you know, fumbling just a little bit because his his ambition yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, could not quite match his his reach. You know, he he, but but. You, you really love the, the nerve and the bravura of of the things that he's trying here. You you sense very early on, and you even saw some of that in those first films of Akira Kurosawa, that that uh, you know, later Eclipse series set that you and I talked about it, uh, probably a couple of years ago by now. Uh, yeah, he's he's really striving. He he does have a sense of. Yeah, I can do this. I can do something new. I can do this something unique. I can I can extend things that I've seen in, into different territory, or I can bring the uh, the methods and the and the insights of, of directors from other countries and tell the story of my own society uh, of Japan. And uh, and you love that about these films, yeah, even when. He also sit back and say, "Well, that didn't exactly <laughs> work out so well." So, uh, yeah, uh, I don't. Know, any other introductory thoughts before we start our uh, kind of digest of these the three intriguing films? Well, just kind of along those lines, we talked about it with Bergman that every once in a while, the artist himself or herself is of such great interest that it's worth getting to know a lot of the trivia about them and their progress into it. Um, into making the greater films because their life and the things they explored is worthwhile and almost like a piece of art itself. And, you know, it, that's how Kurosawa is. That's why when he makes a movie called Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, you know, late in life, we go, all right, I want to see that. Let's see what what your dreams are, you know. <laughs> and And the movie might be a bit of a mixed bag, but we still want that insight into his into his personality and into some of the thoughts that he's had over time and um 
so yeah, th- th- this is not a waste of time by any means. Um, not just because it's Kurosawa, though. I mean, maybe my last thought on it will be, and, and we'll we'll be able to show this as we appreciate these films that uh, despite uh, some of the fumbles that do make it interesting to see oh here's where Kurosawa tried this and he did it better in this later movie you know they're still these movies have a lot going for them individually and um, and those fumbles almost almost make them you know I'm thinking of one in particular in One Wonderful Sunday um, that we'll get to almost make the movie more charming it yeah it it's it's it it pulls it out it's something that could certainly be a critique but when you when i look back on it i go wow that that's kind of a a beautiful moment um in in a in a film that was beautiful all along and yeah it, it technically is a misstep but it, but at the same time i'm i'm sure glad that it went there it shows some earnestness it shows some some um some real passion um from the filmmaker and so yeah, let's right. let's yeah, get Yeah, if you don't know them. what Trevor's talking about, yeah, we'll we'll get to that. <laughs> but, but I'm right on track with you there, found my friend. So, yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about um, what so again the context of these films. Maybe we can just do a little bit of uh, intro. So this these are films from 1946 uh, with uh, No Regrets for Our Youth, One Wonderful Sunday, uh, 1947, and Scandal, which I believe was 1950. So we are you know right out of the wreckage of the war, especially with No Regrets for Our Youth, uh, which is a little bit of a, a historic throwback. But but Kurosawa had, you know, by now had a few films under his belt. Uh, interestingly enough, one of them, The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail, uh, which was actually filmed prior to the end of the war, had not yet been released and would not be released until 1952, after he had sort of secured his fame and reputation as a as a globally successful filmmaker following the release of Rashomon and, and perhaps Seven Samurai. I think Seven Samurai was right around the same time, but it's like, all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's an unreleased Kurosawa film in the vault? Let's go ahead and get it out there, you know? But but uh, Tiger's Tale, as we talked about in that earlier episode, was was deemed a little bit too feudalistic to pass the American censorship laws, or at least the studio just didn't want to risk it. And so that one sat in the can for a while. So, uh, yeah, uh, No Regrets for Our Youth was kind of Kurosawa's return to mainstream distribution. And it was uh, kind of like, what was it, the Asone family? Uh, I can't remember the, the first words of the title, but in the Kenosha set, it was one of these very early retrospectives on, you know, now that we've emerged from the nightmare of this war, how in the world do we get here? Uh, Japan, uh, Japanese directors now had the free license to, you know, maybe not take a overly harsh look, but certainly a critique of the the paths that led their nation into this great calamity. And that's clearly what, what Kurosawa is uh, aiming at here and, and no regrets for our youth. Uh, maybe we can just uh, get right into that film. So this is the one that stars Setsuko Hara. Uh, this I don't know if I've ever seen her any younger, uh, and and this is a really wonderful performance on her part. Of course, Setsuko Hara is is quite famous for the pivotal role that she played in the films of uh, Yasujiro Ozu, in particular the Noriko trilogy, which is. Uh, 
late spring, early summer, and Tokyo Story. She plays three different characters, each named Noriko, and uh, is you know just thoroughly exquisite and awe-inspiring in in just the sensitivity of her performance in those three films. But she went on to do several other films with uh, with Ozu as well, and she's just as stunning and moving in, in those later movies as uh, you know as she is in those three that she's most famous for. Here we see her really going through kind of an emergence from, I don't want to call her almost like a Bobby Sox teenager, but she is kind of a young ingenue. She plays the daughter of a professor uh, who is, uh, you know, a bit of an intellectual who leans to the left, politically speaking, uh, and, you know, finds himself falling out of favor as Japan's uh, kind of government and military becomes increasingly nationalistic imperialistic and, and uh you know intolerant of dissenting points of view uh yuge is her name and and she is kind of uh the you know the charming and eligible daughter of this professor and she's pursued by a couple of young men who uh you know for each having their own temperament there's no gay the uh the, the kind of the more bold and, and uh, you know, ideologically driven uh, activist type. And then there's, um, let's see, what's this guy's name? Uh, oh, Itikawa. And he's the more prudent, sensible man, he, he, another student. Uh, and and she recognizes they both have a fondness and affection for her. There's some really lovely scenes at the beginning of the film where they're showing uh, these students in their youth, the, the youth referred to in the title of the film. And this is you know, kind of starting off in the early 1930s. And so there's there's periodic jumps throughout the narrative and little intertitles that tell you what year we're in. And I'm sure for an audience of Japanese filmgoers in 1946, just the mention of years like 1933, 1937, 1941 sort of evokes very particular memories and, and emotions even of, of what happened during those critical turning points. Uh, yeah, so what, 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 you know, kind of give us some of your thoughts on, on this film and, and uh, especially as a first-time take. You know, I've watched these films several times over the years. It's been a fun revisit, refresher. I find them just as engaging and captivating as when I first uh, watched them. And there's re uh, links to my reviews for the Journey Through the Eclipse series that are found on our show notes. But Trevor, this is kind of your first time through. So what's a quick take you got for us on uh, No Grips for Our Youth? Well, I think it's a it's a really remarkable film coming off of the, the ones that we watched in the first films of Akira Kurosawa set. Um, it, it shows just a lot of advancement, um, both in terms of what he's willing to explore, and, and and just this sweep of this thing. I mean, you can tell he's he's gearing up for some epics in him because this this movie goes over what like sixteen years or or thirteen years or so. Um, yeah, it takes it right up from nineteen thirty three to the to nineteen forty six. So thirteen years there, and. Um, and covers a lot of ground in all of that. I mean, it, it's it's not even two hours long, and yet it covers um, pretty thoroughly some of those pivotal moments. You you get a courtship, you get a marriage, you get the aftermath, and then you get the the really fine final act, um, which is kind of all the fallout of all of what has happened before, up to a little bit of redemption there at the end, and 
nothing that we saw in the first set kind of uh, led me to think this would be anything incredibly special. <laughs> but I think part of it is, you know, we get in the first set that, um, right now I'm blinking on the name of the film. That, um, Sancho Zugata? Uh, or the most, well, no, I'm thinking of the, the, most, the, most, uh, the most beautiful. Yeah. Just pure war propaganda. Uh, to get to this film, which is... You know, uh, again, kind of like the Kenosha set, we, we get some a film that's kind of like in the Kenosha set, where you've got the the propaganda from World War II going on in the early parts of the film of the films, and then you get to the first post-war, which is an attempt to to have a little bit of penance to make sense of things, and then you kind of see a little bit of the the American censorship, you know, the American occupation is going on while Kurosawa is making this film. And so it, it has to almost bend over the other way and show a bunch of, of individuals in Japanese society that didn't ever want the war and that were punished for, for doing it, but then got some redemption because they've come out okay on the other end and they're going to rebuild. Um, but beyond all that, it really is just a great story of a personal struggle um, uh, to to continue to work, to continue to to fight for what is right, um, even though nobody around you um, believes in you, believes in in your cause, and you know it can be backbreaking, um, but it can also be ennobling. With uh, Setsuko Hara's character in particular, we see a lot of that, and. You know, I I will say it feels a little bit um, un unbalanced in in some regards because the final act is so uh, you know I guess particularly exquisite and it's the one that really delves into character and it felt so it felt like the first two thirds of the mil of the movie was some good um, in essential story bit but you know maybe took up so much time that. Um, it felt a little bit unbalanced to me, but yeah, it's almost yeah, like wanna... you're into a, a different movie in that last portion. So maybe to right. summarize a little bit, what you have in the first two thirds, the first first and second act is is kind of a story of this young woman's coming of age. You know, she's she's smart. You know, you know she's obviously the, the daughter of a professor and and a very devoted mother. Uh, she's a gifted pianist. Uh, she's she's able to keep up with the intellectual arguments and the political debates, but she's not really interested in them. She she just wants to explore life and and live and 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 experience the beauty and freshness and vitality of her younger days. There's a great days, innocence, right? exactly. A great innocence, and of and course, it's captured beautifully in it, the first um, it, part of the film. It really is, I, yeah. yeah. The, with the with the with the men kind of chasing after her yes. as they're walking oh, on the that. stream, and 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 it is that it's that cross cutting technique that Kurosawa made so famous and. You know, Seven Samurai and Rashomon, another where you know the characters are running and there's you know you see them kind of popping up in sequence after each other, and there's just incredible energy that's generated, and and it's like you, you don't exactly expect to see that in this, you know, especially at the early stages, this kind of domestic, uh, you know, character story, uh, but but it's there, and there's another kind of recapitulation of that scene towards the end when they're kind of running through the rice paddies and and uh, trying to, you know you know, make some sense out of the, the chaos that's befallen them. So so Kurosawa is clearly experimenting with technique, but the technique becomes really, you know, 
obvious and, and maybe to a certain degree heavy handed at the end when he sort of adopts this kind of Soviet realism style uh, of the glories of the proletariat and the farmers in the field. But I, I kind of get ahead of myself here. So but, but what we basically see is uh, you know, Satsuka Haro coming of age. You see some political strife and activism, some student riots when uh, their beloved professor is dismissed because his views are just a little bit too out of line with the party orthodoxy. Uh, you sort of see a, a spy case, a little bit of... Uh, uh, legal intervention to to uh, crack down on individual dissenters uh when uh noge the one the the man that uh yuge really loves the most she's the he's the one who she's most drawn to uh, he's the idealistic activist of the two uh he's most passionate but he's also the most dedicated to his cause and probably destined to lead the most adventurous notorious life and she even says that to itakawa that you know at one point she could have a happy peaceful sensible life with him because he is pragmatic he kind of goes along with the system he recognizes which way the wind blows and doesn't really want to make waves he's just kind of taking care of his business um but there's something a little bit too safe a little bit too predictable to to win her earnest affection and love even though she recognizes he'd be a good partner for her and he he would love her and and so there's a little bit of a romantic tension there but then it gets into this whole new territory after that story has run its course and and uh you know she was she does marry Noye at, at a certain point but then he is arrested and dies in prison and now she's widowed at a pretty young age and she fulfills a kind of a domestic duty by, you know, sort of moving on from her own parents who miss her and would love to bring her back into their household. But she goes to her late husband's household and they are poor farmers from the really rustic part of Japan, the people who were probably the most exploited internally during the whole run up to the war and, and even the Japanese war effort where, you know, I don't know the details, of course, but when you think about who were the grunts, who were the frontline infantry soldiers who were, you know, you know, uh, kind of uh, cannon fodder for the the uh, the adventurism that the the Japanese military engaged in, it was probably those guys. It was those kind of poor, semi-literate young men from the rustic countryside rather than the more privileged uh, city dwellers in, in the, the big cities like Tokyo and Kyoto or other places. I mean, there were a lot of, you know, Japanese men who didn't fight in the war and, and they were doing other things. And you do sense this kind of uh, hierarchical split about from between those who really paid in flesh and blood and, and life and sanity uh, to support the war and those who maybe profited off of that. And obviously, those people surviving the war, watching movies in 1946, were probably a little bit more of the, of, of the latter, those who perhaps prospered to some degree from the war, if you could say prospering occurred at all in Japan, but but they were the people who were more in control or maybe had the privilege of not being sent out there on the front lines. And so, uh, you know, there are probably a lot of between-the-lines uh, commentaries being made by Kurosawa in this film that those of us who are watching, you know, a couple generations uh, 
hence may not completely pick up on. But and and then there is that heavy hand of American propaganda saying, "Hey, we want you to make a movie that's going to persuade the Japanese audiences of 1946 that going pro democracy isn't such a bad idea, and that the people who were against the war were right all along." And I'm sure in Japan there were much more nuanced and complicated points of view um, all across all levels of society. But, you know, it becomes a little bit deep in the weeds of uh, historical uh, sociological analysis there. We do have a movie that we're watching on the one hand. And so as we get to that secondary phase where uh, uh, Yuge has, has gone to live with her husband's parents, uh, what what do you think of the, of the older couple there, especially the dad? <laughs> he sort of sits <laughs> yeah. there in this catatonic state for <laughs> almost uh, every scene that he's well, in. Well, we meet them through a photograph that Noge shows her because she's never met his parents. Um, they, they get married, and Noge's got his own activities going on. Um, and so you see this couple that you you know think of the think of the terrible pictures you see of um, American. Uh, families during the Great Depression, you know, part of the Dust Bowl or whatever. That's kind of what the picture reminded me of. I mean, they're standing there. The picture is that old style. And the dad just looks like a weak old man, his, his sunken face and his mouth in particular. You know, he's lost his teeth, it looks like, in that photograph. Then you go and meet them, and there's some resoluteness behind the, all of that that... It still plays out while they look defeated. Um, they've just lost their their son, and the dad is basically seen for a long time sitting in the in the living room, staring um, forward, uh, stone faced. He's strong. He's not accepting the way things are going. He doesn't he doesn't accept Yuki coming to their home and doing this. He doesn't believe her. Um, and their son, you know, not just not only has he died, but he's also been accused of being a spy. Well, because he was a right. spy, he, and he's been completely <laughs> you know, he, disgraced. It's actually true. And and the um, family in that militaristic atmosphere has been completely, you know kind of excoriated that they've been made complete pariahs all the villagers are just swallowing the government propaganda without question yep. and so these 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 surviving parents are just the they're almost like the cursed little household that everybody wants to shun or punish and and uh yeah yeah they're and when you say the goat. living room i mean <laughs> we're talking about the shack that they Th- live true. in. true <laughs> true yes it, it's it's just it's a room it's true it's probably it's every room <laughs> um but there, there's something great about them. They, they, they really come alive as characters. Uh, the mother, you know, as we talk about her, we first meet her digging a grave um, at nighttime. And, and that, that really, all of a sudden, everything takes on a different depth. And that's why it feels so different, this latter part of the film, to me, than the first part. Um, she's out there digging the grave and saying, people dig graves for dogs at night. I mean, she's lamenting. It, it kind of brought to mind Hamlet yeah. to me yeah. oh, and yeah, the grave sure. digging scene right. there. and. You know, Shakespeare had a, a big influence on Kurosawa, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if he had some of that in mind. You know, a peaceful grave digging scene um, where you can really kind of burrow in on an individual's emotions for a little bit and listen to them um, feel 
you know what they're going through. Right, this and, lamenting in the moonlight and and the isolation, and the reason they're doing this at night is they they can't really show their faces during the day. They have to do everything yeah. at night because that's the only time it's kind of safe to emerge from their little hovel. Well, and you brought up the 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 cross cutting scene at the beginning where there's so much innocence and delight. It takes place in in the sun in the forest, and it's youth running through. And then you, you you brought up that that it's kind of matched later on. Um, it, it's it's they're walking through everywhere, and these children, so they're still children, are now popping in and out of the of the bushes, um, saying spies, you know, spies. Yeah, um, like little little shaming them. Little yeah, the, the little almost. kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true. I hadn't thought about that. But that's the that's the match. And how different 1933 um, feels to this particular moment um, while the war is going on, and Nogue is disgraced, and the family is disgraced, and Yuki has decided to embrace that and stand with them, and so she becomes a part of it. Um, and really, toward the end again, the editing, um, well, this not the end, but this last um, act of the play, which takes quite a bit of time, the editing really takes center stage as far as a technique to really show some deeper emotions and, and get away from just a, a storyline of moving, you know, here's here's the Kyoto incident, here's here's the spying, here's the policeman, you know, which is uh, Takashi Shimura, by the way, and I, I love watching him in, yeah. in anything, so seeing him pop up as a, a rather ruthless policeman was, was uh, fun. Um, but getting away from kind of this sequence of plot points to, okay, here's where the movie's going to settle in, and Kurosawa is going to use all the techniques at his disposal to really um, delve into what Yuki and um, and Noge's parents are going through together, even though the parents don't fully at the first trust Yuki, and in particular the dad doesn't. And so we get this really tremendous scene of Yuki helping them plant the rice field. She's never done anything like this before. It's backbreaking labor. Right. And she's a, lot a of privileged the beauty, daughter of academia, yeah. you know, and she's always in her nice dress and her delicate hands mm-hmm. are built for playing the piano, not for <laughs> pulling <laughs> hoes and rakes and shovels, right? Well and, and a lot of that beauty that she has as youth, you know, they they, they deglamorize um Setsukahara quite a bit here and to where you know she now looks like part of the the lower class and has been broken by a lot of this work at the same time becoming strong in mind and spirit yeah and, and in body i mean she's able to endure this now mm-hmm. and um it, it's such a strong scene i did not expect what happens f- to them um to right, happen and right. when it did i was i was devastated yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, 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 it's, it really it's was very emotionally gripping it, it hit me. And, and heroic and and tragic and and even even somewhat stunning because you know you you, you excuse me. Uh, often we do think we've got the trajectory of this film figured out, and and sometimes you you, you enjoy the ride. You sort of say, yeah, take me through that whole tragic uh, you know arc and that cycle that. That will end in some kind of, uh, you know, exquisite dilemma or whatever it is. You know, we talked about the unpredictability of French cinema of 1930s, and and in that sense, you you 
you did sort of have a consistent theme, but you didn't know exactly where it was going to end up. Here, it does seem like Kurosawa just really embarks on a whole nother tangent here because that that glorification of rustic rural labor, you, you really didn't see that coming in the first two thirds of the film. But that really yeah. is kind of what it comes down to. It's like, and I guess metaphorically or in some cases literally, the message is okay, folks. We got to roll up our sleeves, you know, set aside our fineries, you know, sell the piano and get out there and and dig and and get down in the dirt and and rebuild this thing. And and that is really the the parting message of this film. And and even the title, "No Regrets for Our Youth." Apparently, uh, just reading on Wikipedia, it, that became a bit of a catchphrase. No regrets for fill in the blank kind of like how uh you know i graduated I born, but, but i was born but <laughs> yeah exactly uh you know there's a little uh, little clip in the good morning ozu of blu-ray that talks a little bit about how these phrases kind of caught on with the public and so nil regrets for uh was kind of one of those statements that 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 kind of expresses a certain wistfulness um a refusal to regret, uh, 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 an active, willful decision that says, you know what, you know, yeah, the past was terrible. Uh, good people died. Uh, a lot of us have done terrible things in order to get through this, and and a lot of people really were involved in, um, you know, the black market, and we're going to talk about that in the next film as well. But we cannot, you know, sink down into self pity or despair or resignation uh, the the stakes are too high uh, the demands of life are too urgent and so we will proceed uh, with no regrets for our youth and so again you know you, you put the movie in context and it's like this is a very powerful statement being made here and and I just you know and again it's, it's for a director still establishing himself and uh, I, I just find it all very impressive and 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 uh you know, marvelous experience. Yep, I agree. And, and and I'm glad he decides to settle down and take the time in that last part. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but the Every Frame of Painting um, guy, Tony, Tony um, Zhu, Zhao? I'm not mm -hmm. sure how you say his last name. <laughs> right. um, he has a, a one on editing where he kind of compares, you know, he says something like, you know, people aren't robots. We need time to develop and experience emotions. And that's what Kurosawa shows here. If it just kind of kept going through plot points, it wouldn't be a powerful movie. But when you can experience with them the labor and that triumph of getting the rice field um, planted, and then it hits you so much harder when the neighbors destroy it. And, yeah, it, 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 and he spends a lot of time building that up and then tearing it right down. And then he yeah, builds it right back up again because they're not going to let that act of futility and sabotage be the last word. They're going to get back out there. And, of course, that's when the old man sort of makes his triumphant re-entry and he gets up off of his, you know, seat of 
you know, detached contemplation yeah. and the horrors of it hope. all. And, and it's involved, yeah. And again, you sort of see that same staggering old man character come up. I mean, he's there in Seven Samurai, and there's the old woman in Seven Samurai uh, who gets her revenge uh, uh, at, at the bandits. And, and, you know, Kurosawa just has a knack for <laughs> those old crotchety figures on their last <laughs> legs, but they're going to get that one last lick in there before it's all said and done. <laughs> and so you, you see some of these these notes that uh, he's going to return to, uh, you know, in future and perhaps greater films. Yeah, uh, but I, I, I kind of think that, um, you know, still young Kurosawa, still growing, but for my money, his first uh, exceptional film. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, so. I, think, I mean, you know, and, and the, you know, the popular consensus is let's go with those noir films again. Uh, uh, young Mifune, Takashi Shimura, kind of a little bit more featured character, like in in Drunken Angel and Stray Dog, and those are beautiful films. I, I'd really kind of intended to want to watch those again, just to kind of fill in the gaps of this set. Haven't had a chance to, but I, I might squeeze them in over the weekend and uh, and do that in preparation for the 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 final two films we're going to discuss next time. But uh, any final thoughts? I mean, I, just, I still think about Setsuko Hara and just what a you know what an expansion of my image of of what she was capable of and 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 really just just such a delight to see her uh, at at this younger stage of her career uh she has just some really gorgeous close up moments and uh and really just just shows some remarkable range and it does make me wonder did she really know how to play the piano that well i mean she, she oh yeah she, she looks like she, it. She, i had really, the same yeah, thought yeah exactly they weren't using a, a hand double there in some of those scenes and yeah she's yeah i know she's a extremely beloved character uh, primarily based on her ozu films i i really have to think but uh, this, I'm sure this, this is yeah. definitely canonical Setsuko Hara here. This is not just a, a stroll through the park for her um, and a very well, important film for her career, I imagine. Yeah, th- there's a reason that, uh, uh, what was it, a year and a half ago or so, um, that when her death was announced, uh, people who obviously never knew her mm-hmm. felt a very personal loss, yeah. even though they'd never even known what she's been up to for the last 20, 30, wow. 40 years yeah, even, you know, yeah. there was still that Practically sense that... 50. I mean, she really retired yeah. after Ozu died in, what, 62, 63. So she, and she became very reclusive soon afterwards. Yeah. But but there was one comment, and I can't remember who said it. It might have been Michael Hutchins or, you know, but someone said it, and it was really touching. They just said, you know what? I liked living in a world where I just knew she was somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> And you <laughs> yep. know, there and she's gone now. Yeah. This that that kind of appreciation for what she was able to bring to the table, and you know, sometimes I think that that we forget that they're acting a role in these movies, and that may not be even close to what their actual personality is like. Um, and and yet, there's something um, full and genuine about her that that really does make you feel like they're that's someone to emulate that's someone to look up to and and this movie um plays right into that i mean it doesn't play into anything because it's you know early it's not like it's taking advantage of a reputation at this point but it's just part of all that all right well very good well let's go ahead and uh, transition on over to the next film in our uh, queue today this is a 1947's one wonderful sunday which I guess going back to my uh, old review from several years ago, I kind of consider Kurosawa's rom-com. <laughs> uh, 
a bit of a romantic <laughs> comedy here where it's really kind of following uh, a young couple. They're not married, but they sure would like to be. Uh, but they're kind of on their weekly date. Uh, two working class folks uh, kind of picking up the pieces. And I think this is set in Tokyo. Is that right? I, uh, if it's, I think so. I, if it's not I Tokyo, so, it's yeah. a large city in Japan, a big metro area. But yeah, let's just assume it is Tokyo. Uh, these are two folks who work six days a week and probably work long hours and get paid just a pittance for uh, their labors, but uh, because they don't have a whole lot to show for it uh, as far as cash in pocket is concerned. But they do have that Sunday afternoon off, and so they're going to make the most of uh, whatever they can do uh, during those precious hours they have together. And so, uh, yeah, it, it is kind of interesting to think about, you know, the circumstances of an audience enjoying this film or being drawn to it. Uh, presumably Kurosawa is probably speaking to people who are living a life not all that different from uh, what they see on screen. And so his task, as we think about in today's romantic comedy genre, is to say, hey, what's a what's an enjoyable story that men and women can go out and enjoy a kind of a cheerful night out, uh, you know, kind of a little slice of life, a few laughs, a little, little poignant, uh, tugging at the heartstrings, uh, maybe even a tear or two as they kind of think about the struggles that, that life puts us, uh, puts us all through. And at the end of it all, you know, saying, Hey, you know, that's a good story. I can relate. Uh, we had a good time and, go on to whatever uh whatever follows that movie going experience uh, that is kind of the essence of the uh of the romantic comedy a little bit of a diversion but but not such an escapist uh fantasy that that it doesn't bear you know some strong connections to the lives that we're living and so this story here is really just based on on uh probably observations that kurosawa and his uh collaborative team uh, made about what's going on these days and and whereas uh you know no regrets for our youth definitely had a retrospective historical uh, dimension and and a seriousness about it as it's grappling with pretty hefty issues of of politics and war and law and oppression and all of that this is more just hey what is happening folks <laughs> and, and uh you know uh you know, both both the, the the joys and the sorrows of of daily life in uh, rebuilding post war Japan. So, so what would you think of One Wonderful Sunday? Was it as wonderful as the title implies? Yes, <laughs> just I, I get that out of the way. Um, I loved this movie. It's probably the one that um, hit the most personal chord with me uh, that we've watched in this set. Um, it, th- there's just something. I don't know. Maybe it's a bit sentimental um, at times, but there's something just beautiful about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a, a young couple, and and probably just like many members of the audience would be. I mean, they're not the most destitute out there. They're, they're pretty. They, they hard run off. into people who are poorer than them. They, in the course yes. Of story. Yeah, exactly. They're not the most destitute. They don't have a lot of money, but they're able to pinch their yen. Um, just enough that they have, you know, between them, enough to go and have a little bit of fun on a Sunday, and maybe any Sunday they might choose to go see the new Kurosawa flick or something like that. <laughs> so, so you can see this couple in the audience watching this, and it's just it's an exploration of the emotions they must be going through of 
of a little bit of despair and uncertainty, but trying to make the most of it, trying to stay positive, trying to stay pure, uh, which we'll get into as we talk about all the corruption that could lead them to a better life that they choose to to um, avoid. And, and in the end, to try to come out of it all and keep that hopeful spirit alive, um, even in the face of a lot of odds, because you know what, someday you, you're going to be able to rise up. The times are changing. Um, keep working. Keep going strong. You're going to make it. And and it's it's just it's it's lovely. There's there's so many subtle little touches to it, um, and that's really kind of what builds this film and makes it from being kind of a sentimental, uh, just you know, story. Um, that that's meant to help people into something that's really nicely textured, where you really start to feel genuine compassion for these characters, um, and and it reminded me a great deal of some Charlie Chaplin movies, you know, Modern Times, um, the uh, the the gold or the the Gold Rush, things like that, where there's a lot of struggle, but if you can find the joy in the little things, you can you can kind of get by. Um, and, and um, you know, thinking of some of the little moments that, that really kind of uh, brought it alive, there's, there's the time when they're, they're wandering through um, a new kind of development, seeing some of the homes that are going up, and the homes are 100,000 yen. Yeah, these little prefab you know, the, uh, cracker boxes, e, yeah. you know, sign the contract che- and we'll have cheap, it up by the end of the cheap week. Cheap homes, <laughs> yeah, so. too cheap. Um, for some people, but out well out of the price range for this particular right. couple. And when they hear that there might be a room for rent um, kind of <laughs> on the other side of town, yeah. they're running to it and a train is, is coming. Uh, and we don't see the train. We just hear it. You know, we're standing in front of them. The track is between us and them. And she grabs his hand so that he doesn't just rush over, you know, as, as they, and they wait for the train. And as the train passes, you can see under the train and her feet, she's running in place because she's so excited to get to, get to where they're going. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It, there's so much charm in it. You know, she's, she's, again, kind of to bring up some innocence there, but this isn't naivety. She's chosen to be this way. They, they're choosing to to remain innocent. And that just plays off so often through. Um, She's kind of the stalwart one because the man, you know, he chooses to be innocent. He chooses to avoid some of the the pitfalls that that he could um, fall into. But he's also very tempted at times and very discouraged because it seems like that might be the only way to get ahead. And she just won't allow it. It's very interesting, right? He's the one who's really the emotionally volatile one he's the one who goes up and down and she's really has his steadiness there you know i mean she has her moments of frustration as well but it seems like he's the one who's a little bit more prone to uh, the more dramatic fluctuations and mood swings um well and they're there for each other i mean you're right she has them too but they they lean in on each other and and they don't happen at the same time fortunately right right right. (laughs) and and you're right this this is a movie just full of moments and so you you sort of have to get on board but i think this is this is an interesting in, in that this is the least uh, star-driven of pretty much any films in this set. I mean, uh, Kurosawa, as great as he is, was also very well known for, you know, having big talents. I've already kind of mentioned some of those names, and and with Setsuko Hara, even though maybe she wasn't a superstar at the time, but she certainly had 
all those talents, and, and Kurosawa very wisely brought those to the forefront. Uh, here, you don't have that same thing. I mean, you look on the back of the case here, there's no names, at least, that jump out at me. Now, some of these faces, yeah, you've probably seen them here or there, part of the stock of Japanese actors uh, working at uh, in the studio's system at that time. But the, this couple, Asayo um, Numazaki and Chiko Nakakita, I don't know that they ever went on to you know achieve great things, but uh, they're a winsome couple, and and I think their anonymity, their ordinariness, actually is kind of a nice asset there. They're they're not a, a romantic, glamorous couple. Uh, you know, you you think about uh, the the Kenosha or not the Kenosha, but the. Uh, uh, Kurahara films and uh, oh, what's this? Y- Yujiro, you know, and 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 the kind of the the glamorous sex appeal of these uh, beautiful Japanese young people that were kind of part of the Sun Tribe films uh, of the late fifties, early sixties. Uh, that's not what this couple is. They're 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 kind of you know dumpy and mundane, uh, not unattractive by any means, but they're they're not ex- especially you know. Uh, idealized as far as uh, this is the couple you want to be it's, it's this they're not uh, you know kind of a proto bonnie and clyde or anything of that sort they're they're just very ordinary folks and and very relatable in that regard uh so yeah and and, and so it is it's very episodic we're just basically going through the the uh little moments uh you know there's some boys in the street playing baseball so uh so the guy and not just any street i mean this yeah. is a the, and it a does busy... say it's tokyo <laughs> yeah right but go ahead but it's a bunch of rubble in the street well, i mean right. this is post-war right. you know this is still this isn't not everything's been cleaned up yet right. and there's cars rolling through get to and, play. and there's yep. ox carts <laughs> rolling through you know it's it's a it's a very uh tumultuous scene but Doggone it! These boys are going to play some ball <laughs> and have their their moment in the sun as well. And it is it's, it is it's all these little slices of life that are, you know, probably uh, you, you you can't produce them anymore. They but they really are of their moment, and and you really do feel uh, that and the neo realism, if if you will, of of bringing the cameras out into the streets and real locations and ordinary people doing what real people do uh, that was a that was kind of a an innovative uh, trend uh, of the times and and as I, again as i mentioned in my review uh from years ago this film actually came out before bicycle thieves and so uh you know kurosawa was very attentive to what uh you know the neo realists were doing even before Desika's major breakthrough there uh, of saying, hey, let's let's get out of the studios. Let's let's talk about what's really going on. We've got cameras that are a little bit more portable. And, uh, you know, just like post-war Italy uh, was, you know, the, st- the studios were, were pretty damaged and, and really not functioning. Uh, the Japanese uh, filmmakers were saying, let's get out into the streets as well ourselves. And so, yeah, you know, this is maybe not a film that, to me at least, yields itself to tons of analysis. I mean, it's just basically just join them on this little journey, and uh, and enjoy the ride and enjoy the uh, you know, enjoy those little moments of of connection of uh, you know winsome. Uh, well, I don't know. Just, just, just kind of the, the, yeah. the challenge of of, yeah. of getting through each day of, of finding 
something enjoyable, even when the weather doesn't cooperate. You know, they get rained on. They yes. have to scramble for <laughs> shelter. Uh, they have to find a, a cheap source of entertainment. And just when they think they do, they they see there's a symphony and, and there's there's a bunch of cheap tickets available. But even then, you, you kind of get into some of that uh, kind of scammery, some of that, that uh, hustle that's going on at the, the black market. I think you had some thoughts along those lines. Want to go ahead and take that theme up? Well, yeah, uh, but I wanted to quickly just follow up on one thing that you you mentioned. Just that that struggle that to get through the day and and come out um, positive on the other side, and and to help each other. You know, there's there. It's just filled with these little moments. Like he looks down at her shoes, and he, he's he's kind of sad because she has a ma- major hole in this shoe. I mean, this shoe yes. is falling apart basically, and. You can tell he's just devastated because he loves her. He doesn't want her to have to do that. And he feels, I should be able to provide for her. I can't change this situation. Mm-hmm. And and he talks to her a little bit about it. And um, I can't remember exactly what she says, but it's basically something along the line of, oh, that hole? They, they, they drain quicker this way yeah. when they get wet. Finding the bright side, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the way the she state. delivers it is, is really nice, too, because... I don't know. There, there's something beautiful about all those moments, but the, you see the genuine struggle to to be positive in in poverty really play out when you get to um, some of this corruption going on. You know, you, you brought up the one at the at the the theater or the symphony where he could buy. He, they have enough money for them to buy B tickets. Yeah. You know, the the lower um, tier tickets. And they just have enough for it. By the time they get to the front, though, those have sold out. Well, it's because well, one behold, guy particularly buys he, right. the whole batch and becomes a scalper. Yep. It's not like they were exactly. too late to get there. There were plenty of tickets, but one jerk had to go and mess it all up for everybody else. Yep, and he's standing now off to the side saying he's got the B tickets. When they go over there, now they, they're out of their price range. And... You know, there's a little bit of a scuffle, and the one guy says, "Hey, I paid good money for these." And like, yeah. yeah. And, and <laughs> this know? is the, where 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 the guy, uh, what's his name, I, Yuzo, I guess, is the the man. He he sort of has a snapping point, and and actually, that's that's not like he breaks down uh, unjustifiably. He's he's kind of showing a little bit of grit, a little bit of gumption, saying, "You know, I've been kicked around enough. It's time for me to." kick back a little bit uh you know yeah. and, and it doesn't go well for it doesn't him, go but... <laughs> well but but you know you, you still ha- admire his moxie because he's he's just not yes. going to take it sitting down he's i mean he's he's patient he's trying to play by the rules he's he's doing the right thing but every guy can only take so much and i think again he, he makes himself a more sympathetic character even though you know <laughs> the law really isn't on his side and the uh, the scalper, the the black marketeer, if you want to call him that, uh, he's just taking advantage of the system, you know. And if uh, if if Yuzo had been a little bit more savvy, maybe he could have done the same thing. But you know, uh, you you don't want to take the low road either. And so these are the little nuances of of, of character and, and integrity that I think uh, you know Kurosawa is celebrating here and and, and bringing forth for us to admire. Uh, so they find their way into this little mm-hmm. sleazy. <laughs> A little apartment there, and and have another series of moments where they kind of, you know, come in out of the rain, and and yet they 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 really struggle there as well, you know, because they recognize the, <laughs> their lot is really just this close to destitution. One more bad break, and they just might really lose it all. Yeah, 
And I don't know if you want to get to it yet or if you have something else. But I think let's um, let's go ahead and get to those pivotal scenes at the end. Because I mean, that is, you know, the scene you alluded to earlier that we might as well just kind of get into it. Because that is is probably the most powerful lingering image of this movie. I mean, if if I could go years without seeing uh, One Wonderful Sunday... Uh, and you mention it to me, I'll say, oh, that's the scene where they, they break the fourth wall <laughs> and and try to yeah. get the audience participation thing going. And it is such a such a, a, a an awkwardly beautiful moment. <laughs> Perfectly said. Awkwardly beautiful. That's exactly what it is. So they they decide to go and have a symphony of their own in an abandoned you know place, an, an abandoned little concert right. amphitheater outside. And um, it, it's just it becomes too much for the man, and, and he he's sitting there. And what does the woman do? I can't remember their names, and it might as well just be the man and the woman, I guess. But the woman turns to us, looks at the camera, and says, "Everybody, please, can you start clapping for him? Show him your support. Show him that there's you know." And, and kind of goes through this thing, and she starts clapping, and. You know, you can imagine in a theater, this might just be fantastic as everybody's invested in clapping. But if it's quiet, it's really yeah, awkward because he's sitting there, like, head down. on the words that she's <laughs> speaking. It's like, oh, yep. we're, we're supposed to do something. Now. It's <laughs> just, and, and there's no music. There's no musical swell here right. to kind of accompany her. She's just up there talking and clapping. And if you're not into it, it it's, it's really going to bomb and apparently that's what happened in japan people didn't participate um, right it's it, well it's it's just a strange thing to be compelled by a face speaking to you from the screen uh as if this is a live yeah this is not theater <laughs> exactly <laughs> and 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 really and there's kind of a there is a little bit of a build-up in terms of of uh yuzo's kind of you know standing up to the podium and then he backs down again and he gets back up there and he just sits down in despair and it's like he wants to sort of will this music he wants to summon the powers of his imagination and his desire to be a better man and to to give masako his his lover a better life and to to become her husband and to fulfill his potential because he knows he's got it in him and yet it's just you know the, the the disappointment is so crushing that he just can't quite get himself over that hump and so <laughs> that's where masako makes her earnest plea just just clap for him just just shout and cheer and applaud and and get him over it and then you know there's the assumption that that's exactly what the audience did and so the characters stand up and they bow to the camera and they thank the audience for their participation <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was funny i mean i i kind of knew what was coming in fact you get to that point in the movie and you're just kind of like you're already on board and ready to get into it so i was watching it with my wife uh, last week and and I'm just all into it. I'm clapping and I'm looking over at her and she's like looking at me with, with the old side eyes like, what is the problem with you? She'd been like reading her book or whatever and all of a sudden I just start clapping and standing up. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I did not participate, um, be, but I was smiling. I was, I was on board. 
but I was smiling both both because of the movie and because of the gumption yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was taken to do this. I, yeah, and, well, and to sell that to whoever his editors or you know producers <laughs> were. It's like, no, we're going to really do this, guys. Come on, it, it'll work. It'll be fantastic. Just trust me on this. <laughs> Didn't you say that Hiroshi Shimizu has a, a moment like that in some of his films from about this same time um, that I haven't seen yet? Oh. Seem, seems like you said there was something about the young kids kind of clapping and, and cheering for. I, I'd have to go back to our yeah, episode it's, and remember. It's, it's been years since I've watched those movies myself. It wouldn't surprise me if there was something like that. And and actually, um, in Kurosawa's Red Beard, have you ever seen that one? That's one that is a blind spot okay. still for me. There's there's a scene towards the end where he doesn't quite go so blatantly through the fourth wall. Uh, Mark Herney and I kind of had some fun with this, but there's this little kid whose name is Chobo, and and uh, at the end of Red Beard, which is a kind of a, a medical drama, I think it's set in the 1800s, and you know, famous falling out occurred afterwards between Toshiro Mifune and Kurosawa because Kurosawa's demands on Mifune were so extensive. It took a long time to make. It was a huge budget movie, somewhat slightly bloated three-hour epic i mean it's a great film there's no doubt about it but it was just a little bit out of step with where japanese cinema and moviegoers in general were at at the time but at the end of this film this little boy named chobo is close to dying and and all the people in the village are like chobo chobo you know and they're kind of you know kind of trying to summon him from from the 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 graveside and 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 bring him back to life by just yelling his name and and reaching out and it just really struck me like this is an early manifestation of that hyper dramatic <laughs> intensity that audience yes. participation thing that Kurosawa really wants to get you know and and I think we see that a lot in in today's blockbusters and these comic book movies which I typically don't see much anymore now that I'm not mentoring my 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 kid that uh used to I used to go to all those movies with. but they 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 definitely play for those get them out of their seats and cheer or rocky movies do the same thing i mean that you can tell they're engineering that moment where everybody's gonna be pumping their fists and getting into it like that and 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 this is a this is a you know i guess ultimately you have to say a, a failed experiment just because it it does presume a bit more than it probably ought from for an audience to you know clap on demand so to speak but yeah. but i yep. but i i still love it i i think it's just such a a, a wonderful gesture that uh, kurosawa decided to to include in in his you know eventual vast uh, canon of films that uh you know i I'm, I'm so glad that he went through with it i mean this film would be something a little bit lesser a little bit different if it didn't have i agree that unvarnished agree. sentimentality and and just uh, that that misplaced trust <laughs> that the viewers were so completely on board <laughs> that 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 they know they have a a vital contribution to make for the protagonist to 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 meet their destined uh, uh, conclusion there. Hey, apparently it worked in of all places France. So <laughs> the French, they're they're just a little different. <laughs> they're they're either going to boo it or they're going to clap for it. But uh, but they were in. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm glad it's there too. It doesn't it doesn't work, but it works. And I don't quite know how to say it any differently. It makes the movie what it is, 
and it and it also shed some light on Kurosawa to, to both as a filmmaker but as a person as well. But um, he's willing to try something different. He and, and and he sees his role as a filmmaker as someone to kind of inspire and interact with the audience, which uh, you know maybe a lot of them do, but you don't see that all the time. Um, and this is just a technique that he he tried. And um, wisely never and, returned and to exactly never returned that. to. I think I think I might have been thinking of your Chobo story, by the way, maybe because I've heard yeah. that before. Okay. When you were saying Chobo, I was like, I've heard this <laughs> this before. I, yeah. I know I listened to your Redbeard um, podcast sure. with Mark, okay. and maybe that's where it was. Not in a not in a Shimizu movie, but but regardless. Well, Shimizu um, definitely did it, a lot of stuff with good. kids, and and it wouldn't surprise well, yeah, me. There's, he, he he was there's the moment he's crossing the. Yeah, there's there's the moment, and this may be where it came up even, where the the injured person in ornamental hairpin, um, where he is walking across the the bridge um, over the water, and all the kids are on the side cheering for him. Um, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if when we talked about that, you you brought up the the moment with okay. Chobo yeah, as well. All right. All right, <laughs> anyway, sure. a little bit of a digression. Yeah. I apologize, no but we figured it out. I think in the end, and just showing what what some of these folks are going to try in order to advance and to and to do different things with the motion picture, and you know, even though, like I said, even though it doesn't work. It, it it adds itself to the earnestness of these characters. It's as if Kurosawa himself, the filmmaker, is as earnest and and not naive, but but hopeful and and not cynical um, as these characters that he's presenting. You know, he he wants us to to be the same way. He wants us to to feel that, and and he's willing to trust us, like you said, misplaced trust, perhaps, but just the presence of that trust does deepen the movie in a way that it, it wouldn't if it weren't there. Yeah, yeah. And 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 wins my affection as well. It's just like, wow, he he's uh he kind of threw us a curveball there, but I, I appreciate him all the more for doing that. Yeah, and then and then there is that, you know, that moment. I mean, the the beautiful, you know, Schubert's uh, unfinished symphony at the end there, and and the musical passage, and then that that last scene. I mean, I don't know if, if it struck you. This maybe just more of a side note observation. But that set where they were on, kind of in those culminating scenes of kind of a, I mean, it's, it's clearly a set uh, of a kind of a bombed out wreckage of a city, but it really almost felt to me like the same soundstage that Mizuguchi filmed um, that last passage of Women of the Night, that kind of battle of the women and that mm -hmm. they had that little bombed out church hmm. scene there. I mean, yeah. it, it, the environment felt so similar i almost wondered if they were working with the same props of some sort or if there was kind of a a standard uh you know bombed out tokyo uh back lot there somewhere go to stage 12 <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh but i did i didn't get that but i i think that's probably for me because the tone is so different oh yeah for sure. <laughs> in the two movies sure. but uh but um but i i've certainly can see the the relationship now yeah, yeah, and 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 so of course you know the the one wonderful Sunday really does go through into the, you know, nearly the midnight hour where the the two lovers finally do part and Yuzo uh, uh, the man he's kind of he he really does seem like he's kind of doing a Japanese Jimmy Stewart impersonation with his hat the way he just sort of strolls yep. and struts <laughs> around and, and and yeah I mean that the Frank Capra analogies are made right on the cover of the DVD there but they're they're very apparent you know he's a 
he's kind of a winsome everyman that uh, you know any self-respecting guy can relate to, especially those guys who you know maybe have been a little bit down on their luck, but they're going to push on through it anyways. I, I mean, it is you know maybe not a coincidence. Uh, you know the word wonderful, both in one wonderful Sunday and it's a wonderful life. Kind of uh, you know the the kind of connective tissue between those two films. Uh, obviously, Wonderful Life is a you know revered, beloved classic to millions and millions of people who might not even consider themselves cinephiles, but it, it does have that kind of idealistic, aspirational quality, and I think you have that here as well. Even though it's certainly much more grounded in in a gritty reality uh but there is a a fancifulness uh, and and uh and, a, and an idealism about um uh, you know let's pursue our dreams let's go ahead and make something wonderful happen here that uh all present circumstances would seem to say oh forget it it's not even worth trying and again it goes back to that resiliency thing that i think is such a a critical theme of of this early post-war stage of Kurosawa's career. I think as we get later on into the 50s, uh, you start seeing a little bit more cynicism. And then by the time you get into, you know, like High and Low and The Bad Sleep Well and, and Redbeard, you know, a lot of a lot of that innocence and that naivete and that uh, that optimistic outlook has been eroded. I mean, Kurosawa himself has seen things develop in directions that he's not real excited about. But uh, in this particular case, in this stage of his life and of, of his nation's cultural, uh, you know, development, he's he's looking forward. He's pressing on, and he's he's encouraging. Um, his his fellows to you know don't give up the fight and 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 keep it moving in a positive direction and I really like that about about this particular era of his filmmaking. Yeah, I agree, and I, I like how you talk about kind of the shift that we see even in him, which is why again something like dreams. Um, Akira Kurosawa's dreams means so much. Even you know, again, if it's not such a great movie, you get to see him d- dealing with some demons in that yeah. a- a- that film. And and a- you know, just trying to wrap it back to what I was talking about at the beginning, uh, his his own life, his pursuits are are interesting to me, and I, I know to you as well. And so it's it's worth tracking, and it just it's great that we get to do so while watching some really great films too but <laughs> yeah oh and then there's the scene of them on the swings yeah kind of yes, the precursor yes. to ikiru you know obviously yep. just one of those little little touch moments there that uh you sort of it's just kind of nice to make those connections those little uh you know kind of iconic uh touches well, there and, and here's here's a strange connection that i that i got at the swing set part too i mean i i thought of ikiru but I also thought, and it's a very different film, but of Before Sunrise, um, uh, you know, the Linklater yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, right. There's something about having a, 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 an amount of time, you know, and it's it's just this window of time and trying to make the most of it. And just and, walking yeah, around both, the city, very interacting with each other. But you're right, there, there and, is a template. And enjoying there. each other, enjoying each other's time together, you know, and, and until it's it's too late, you, you kind of... Get them to the to the. You spend as much time as you absolutely possibly can with each other, um, even into the into the you know into the darkness. And 
so anyway, again, very different films. They they have different things going for them, but I like that idea of just um, here here we are a couple who has a set amount of time, and it's the only and they they could waste it, but they choose not to. They're going to go to the zoo. They're going to go try and find some fun food to eat. They're going to play with some kids. They're going to to go and find a symphony. And when that doesn't work, dang it, they're going to go and have their own. And then they're going to go swing together because they're just going to find ways to make these memories and make it a wonderful Sunday, even though so much around them is not wonderful at all. They, they, they have the power to do it. it it's, it's great. And, and um, again, my, the one that hit me the most personally. Yeah, I think probably it is the experience that <laughs> most of us can relate to you know uh, very few of our listeners have probably lived through wartime devastation uh few of us have found ourselves in the front <laughs> pages many, of tabloids i was just gonna say how many have lived through a, a national scandal <laughs> but that's, that's a nice transition it is, david it's a pretty slick little uh uh, segue over into uh, the final film that we're going to discuss this morning, which is Scandal. And this is from a, a couple years later. So we've already kind of talked about uh, the intervening films, The uh, Drunken Angel and Stray Dog, uh, which Criterion has released in standalone DVD editions. Still no Blu-ray upgrade. And for whatever reason, I don't know that I see them as likely Blu-ray upgrades, but again, Blu-ray upgrades Even though don't always make a whole lot of sense to us. Yeah, <laughs> No, they've been rumored ever since the dog drinking, um, getting drunk from years and years ago when they were announcing Anatomy of a Murder. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back spine 600. Sure. Um, and, and that's when I actually thought, oh, I'll have to see those two films. I've never seen them before and do highly recommend them. I, you know, it's been years since I watched them too, so not like we can really dig into them, yeah. but... But don't skip the intervening ones. Those are those are solid releases with um, with the two stars of this film um, that we're going to talk about in, involved as well and doing different things. It's it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Well, let's get into scandal here. So at this point, uh, Mufune has definitely become a star. Uh, Takashi Shimura has definitely become a pretty uh, reliable uh, lead player for Kurosawa. They become a bit of a trio if you will and uh and this kind of repeats those winning pairings of, of shimura and mifune that uh you know it kind of emerged from those kind of more kind of hard-boiled uh crime-based dramas uh mifune himself definitely getting top billing here and 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 really we see him in his youthful glory, he he comes in swaggering on a motorcycle. He's a painter of landscapes. He's you know just got a an, an, an uh, a unique swagger and attitude about himself that that just bursts through the screen almost every time the lens points his way. And uh, the scandal referred to in the title is basically uh, a very small incident that's blown up into a really big deal. Because while he's up on that uh, hilltop uh, painting the mountains in the distance, he has a very chance encounter with a young woman who's missed her bus and is kind of stuck in this remote locale and needs to ride back into town. And uh, being a gallant gentleman that he is, but also just kind of a freewheeling, you know, fella who kind of marches to his own tune and does things on his own terms, he says, yeah, sure, I'll give you a ride. And the problem 
being, if there is a problem, is that she's a actually a famous pop culture figure. She's a popular singer and uh, kind of an early pre-paparazzi uh, version of the of the press takes notice of the fact that this young woman and this uh, you know, charismatic, attractive, but unknown guy have been spotted on a motorcycle, and now they've been spied upon at a hotel, a kind of a mountainside resort, uh, just hanging out in their bathrobe and, and having friendly conversation. And because she's uh, the, the apple of the public's eye, and she's got herself a new gentleman consort, that's uh, all that's needed is to blow this uh, juicy little tidbit into a full-blown rumor and ensuing scandal because uh, um, a self-respecting singer uh, shouldn't be seen in public and shouldn't be gallivanting about uh, these resort areas with uh, with a man that, that she's not married to. Uh, at least that that's that's the conceit here is that her conduct would just be so you know out of line that uh, the public is instantly you know, intrigued and just can't get enough of whatever uh, this, whatever else there might be to these photographs and, and, and rumors. Uh, so this, this story grew out of Kurosawa's own experience of perhaps finding himself now a bit of a celebrity and maybe seeing it happen to him or happen to other people where the, the pop, the popular press uh, takes little tidbits of information and, and blows them up into uh, you know, notorious uh, affairs that become actually pretty disruptive and, and even destructive to a certain extent of, of people's private lives. Uh, now, was the scandal such a big deal or does it, does this deserve the kind of uh, extended uh, play out that, that Kurosawa gives it over the course of this film? I mean, what did you think of scandal, Trevor? Give me a kind of a, a first uh, response to that that whole situation well i guess um to answer your question uh that you just posed of did did the, is the scandal big enough to play out across the whole film i think even kurosawa realized nope nope <laughs> this film needs to go somewhere else yeah. and so right you know again kind of in the middle of this film it pivots um significantly and becomes a movie about um Takashi Shimura's character instead of Toshiro Mifune's character. Very interesting um, little shift there. And I, I would be fascinated to know if this was always the intent or if um, if it really was like, well, I can only take this scandal so far. Right. I've got to have something else. He found himself midstream um, kind of with all in. this footage yeah. in the can. It's like, i got to make something out of this. <laughs> because, I mean, there's... Shimura, what can you do? Right, there, there's just really <laughs> nothing. I mean, even, even by the standards of a fairly, you know, prudent, modest, uh, you know, relatively uptight, society all you really have is a photograph of a man and a woman i mean they're they're fully clothed I, yeah they're in bathrobes they're on a balcony you could perhaps you know retroject that they may have been in bed together not that long before the photo was snapped but you know i don't think even in 1950s societies were so naive to think that you know beautiful young pop stars didn't have you know uh affairs and lovers and and things of that sort so that yeah. that whole that whole setup just seems a bit implausible and and that the public would just be so 
loaded that they just can't get enough of this this you know juicy story. It's like, well, you know, come on, is there really that much smoke there uh, to to convince us there's a fire? Well, and even even if it does, I mean, not to like say these things are okay because you're right. The destructive um, influence over the private life can certainly be felt even when the public has forgotten and right. and doesn't care anymore and doesn't even believe it. You know, you plant these seeds in these other relationships of of some distrust, and and even if the the spouse is saying or the the girlfriend or significant other is saying, well, no, I believe you. I'm sure nothing happened. Oh, do do they so so that's kind of playing out in the background but i do think it totally runs its course <laughs> before we get to the halfway point um and it does kind of show that, that they're fairly naive to even take this further because it becomes a it becomes a lawsuit it becomes a courtroom drama yeah, um yeah. at the latter part of the we're film we're going to sue that, this publisher yeah. to salvage our reputation and which doesn't work right and and <laughs> it re- really and, and and this isn't a murder case this isn't a government espionage this isn't a, you know treason or or some other high crime or misdemeanor it's a, it's a it's a dispute over the use of somebody's public image and you know, with all due respect, who really, who really cares? You know, uh, well, and and the the newspaper guy is exactly right. If you make a big deal out of this, you're just helping us out. You're sure. just making it something that sticks around and stays. And you know, people are gonna try to form their opinions now. People are going to become interested in this affair. More people are gonna read about it. I'm gonna sell more papers. Thank you. Yeah. You know that this is great, and that that's true. Um, so the story becomes. I mean, it completely pivots. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we don't even meet Shimura's character right. um, for a significant amount of time, and suddenly it's his movie. It, right. I mean, Mufune has some early scenes where he can sort of be the tough guy, kind of barging into the publisher's office and taking a look at the magazines and kind of muscling the dudes up a little bit and just kind of saying, you know, don't don't mess with me. But really, he becomes a very marginal character. Not too far after that, you know, where he's yeah, sort of yeah. sitting marginalized. On, yeah, yes. He's sitting on the bench, just kind of waiting for his lawyer to kick it in and and do what he needs to do. And and this is where the film does kind of creak and strain a little bit because yeah, it does become Shimura's film, and uh, and and the the issue here is that Shimura is a lawyer who decides he's going to get in on the action and he's going to defend this couple. Uh, except he's a little bit on the take. So again, I'm going to turn it over to my attorney friend <laughs> and say, "So, so give me, have... give me your uh, view from uh, from uh, court side here, Trevor. Uh, what do you think of the whole legal well, shenanigans going on?" Here? I've been involved in so many scandals myself, and often am on the payroll of the, you know, <laughs> but it, it, it's it's rather, you know, it's unbelievable as as most um, court cases on TV and, and movies can be. Um, he, he's an attorney who who represents the plaintiffs, so the the, the couple, Toshiro Mifune's character and, and the woman, um, who has you know a name and is played by an actress that I've never seen before and don't see in any other you know Criterion movies I as I look on her thing, so I'm not sure. Kind of a pop starlet of that time, probably a familiar okay. face to those. Who... She's beautiful. Oh, she I is, mean, yeah. she. Yeah. I I was surprised to to not really 
recognize her or know anything else. She may seems have, like someone yeah. who would go on to do other things. Or she but, may and have, she probably did. Or, or she may have just done a few movies, gotten married, and retired because that also happened a mm-hmm. bit as well. You know, with uh, with beautiful young women, they're kind of at their prime as far as movie making is concerned, and then they they have their little you know fling with fame and, and move on to other things. That that may well be the case here. Yeah, but anyway, so they're the plaintiffs, and Takashi Shimura's character um, represents them, um, and he's got his mo- m- motives. He is, he does hate the the press, but he knows the the publisher um, personally and hates him, but also is dependent upon him, and he also has a daughter um, at home who's suffering from tuberculosis. Who's who's dying essentially? Who's incredibly pure? I mean, unbelievably pure and insightful. I mean, she knows everything that's going on with everybody, and gives off her her words of wisdom. And it, that doesn't, you know, that's a weakness of the movie, but not necessarily something that destroys it for me. Um, but but so he he wants to also make money to to help her, and he's willing to do that in any way, including when the publisher comes to kind of bribe him and say, look, you, you throw this case, don't call your witnesses. Don't, um, you know, don't make your best arguments, uh, kind of throw it. I'll pay you. Right. You know, he, he, he struggles with it, but he accepts it. And the daughter knows. And so she's always telling him, dad, I know something's wrong. I know you've done something awful. You, you need to, you need to really represent these people. And then she, you know, the, um, the the couple the the man and the woman the plaintiffs they get to know the daughter and she's up front with them my father i don't trust him you know i think he's he's not being honest with you and and you know eventually um mifune's character says i know i know something is going on here and i know but i'm he's so invested in this family now that he doesn't necessarily care about his own case so much as not rocking the boat and and helping this this daughter um, you know, out as much as he can as well, and offer her support. And he does that by not um dragging the father through the mud. But it, it, a lot of it is is um is Shimura um Takashi Shimura's characters struggle. The attorneys struggle to to become a better person in in this um in this society and to do so, do the right thing regardless of the cost. And yeah, you know the courtroom stuff is interesting. I I don't know how it is in Japan, but uh, a lot of those things w- would just never fly. <laughs> you know, you do have to have notice of certain things, and mm-hmm. and they bring that up. But um, you know, we we usually don't have trials where at the end um, everything is resolved on kind of a a technicality of oh I was bribed dun 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 yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know oh well, then the plaintiffs are innocent you know even that would take a long time to to iron out and and un- unravel in an American courtroom yeah. but I put all that beside the point I mean the the movie is about about Shimura's um, redemption which makes the you know even the title of the movie is misleading I mean sure it's about a scandal but it's not that's not what the movie that's the premise. That's right. not what the movie is about. And so I, I was wondering what would be a better title for this that actually shows it's about one man um, trying to become a better person. And and I, I love Shimura, and I'm, I'm glad he had a chance to do a lot of this same role mm-hmm. in a much better film, Ikiru. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and play, you know, he's got the same... 
You, you see it on his face. I mean, there's the same camera angles mm-hmm. sometimes, the same hunched shoulders uh, that, that's very familiar for me, Kiru. That same uh, wrestling I, with his past, like his guilty conscience uh-huh. weighing in, and he's, he's just got to try to get this right. I think, yeah, it, that, that's, a, that's a great connection, Trevor. I hadn't specifically thought that through, but I, I do see this as maybe the the germ that Kurosawa caught and then grew into Ikiru where he really did keep the focus on Shimura and and really built that character. I think I think you know a uh, scandal is 105 minutes long. I think it might have been a better 90 or maybe even a 60 minute movie because I I, I really feel like this <laughs> a TV movie a TV movie exactly or or a, a, an episode of an hour long uh you know courtroom drama type of situation uh because you know the the, the the tensions in the court is he going to say anything is the is the attorney actually going to represent his plaintiffs or is he just going to let the next witness go by without any you know uh cross-examination and and that the, these same sort of uh movements happen over and over again you know and it's like oh come on we've already kind of had that moment is he going to speak or is he not nope he's not going to <laughs> and then we go back to it again later and it's like oh come on now this is feeling a little bit he's repetitious still doing this here. exactly <laughs> um you, you you mentioned the sickly daughter and she is one of those patented Japanese saints, uh, Naruse definitely seemed to have a <laughs> of a comfort zone of of uh, somebody just got hit by a car and now they're going to be you know muttering. That's gonna. They also got hit by divinity. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and, and now they're little oracles on their deathbed, you know. And and, <laughs> and, and you know uh, you you have the same kind of uh, filthy pond at the center of this little uh, settlement there that you saw. I think that was in uh, is that in uh, Drunken Angel there. And so you know again some some repeated themes here. But again, I, the the storytelling I think could have just been a lot more efficient and and focused. Uh, may, may, totally yeah, agree. May, maybe Kurosawa had a, a certain minutes quota that he had to fill, or he's just really working with how to drive his Keep, emotional keeping, point home. Well, and, and keeping the wheels spinning, yeah. you know, I got to make another movie. Let's get this one out. And, and in the meantime, I'm thinking of, you know, some of these masterpieces that are just mm-hmm. on the horizon mm-hmm. um, that, are, that are about to, to hit. And, and I don't know. There are parts that do work for me. Oh yeah, yeah. Because even though it becomes Shimura's movie, he becomes front and center as the the attorney whose whose decisions are going to kind of uh, you know become the the main focus of the movie. There's something strong and admirable about um, Mifune's character on the periphery because he knows that the attorney is scamming him, and he knows he knows all of this. And yet he's willing to to let it play out, both for the daughter, but also because he, I think he recognizes the only way Shimura's character is going to change is if he does it himself. If he becomes, if there becomes a moment of crisis, and and I don't think that's believable at all. I can't imagine a yeah. <clears throat> a, um, a client ever being like, "No, I'll let you screw up this entire. I'll pay you to mess up yeah, my life because you need and make this me look like a character fool. transforming <laughs> yeah. moment. You know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm yes. investing in you, man. <laughs> yeah. Don't let me down. <laughs> and, and, and yet, and yet, there's something about that that I did did like. I, I liked at the end when they're interviewing him and how does it feel to be innocent? And yeah, again, cheesy, unbelievable. But he says something about I don't 
that's secondary here. I saw someone, I saw a man change for the better today. And that, um, that's what I'm taking away from this. And I thought that, that, that spoke to me for, for a minute. You know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't throw the whole thing away. Um, there are great things and, and, and it still struck me. And so there, there's a bit of power in this movie once I'd kind of surrendered to it that just worked and and maybe some of it was incorporating things I know about these two actors and and their their lives and their relationship with Kurosawa and their other movies <clears throat> that made such moments a little bit more poignant to me than they would be if I was just watching this cold. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised at all if I'd incorporated by reference other things, you know, and that's what made this that moment a little bit more important than it deserved to be based on scandal alone. Um, but, but hey, yeah, so the, probably the least of the movies in my opinion, um, but still, still, you know, it, it, it showcases so much of, of these two actors and what they're going to do so much better in other places. Yeah. I mean, this, this probably can be regarded fairly as a bit of filler in Kurosawa's career. I mean, like you said earlier, he's, he's just kind of got the production line going. He's, he's refining his craft. He's, he's staging different types of scenarios Uh, right off the hand. I don't think he had done a whole lot of courtroom type of stuff. And, you know, courtroom is a pretty, uh, standard and, and honorable, uh, tradition within the cinema. And so, you know, what director doesn't want to try his hand at having some, some tensions and, in, in the, you know, in the, in the presence of the court and the jury and all of that. Uh, you know, again, you, you've got that 1950s slice of life in Japan, you know, there's, there's some interesting pop culture stuff going on. Uh, again, a formative uh, roles for both Mifune and Shimura, uh, definitely worth checking out some of their work. And, and, and especially I was thinking about Mifune, you know, we're so used to him as the, you know, kind of rambunctious swaggering samurai or, or even his, kind of more stoic presence as he as he ages and becomes this venerable legend of of Japanese and and world cinema you know here he's not quite to that level yet and so it's kind of nice to see the 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 kind of raw persona more a little bit more malleable he he's he's uh just doing things that that you don't see him do later on once he's sort of established himself as an icon so you know it is it's just it's you know it's a very worthy uh, investment of the time to just sort of say hey what was ak doing then this is the same year that 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 he uh, filmed rashomon so uh you know we've got the the, the, (laughs) give him a break well exactly (laughs) right and and and, and you have that very uh, intriguing uh alternate alteration that that kurosawa did for quite a few years throughout pretty much the entire decade of the 50s uh, one film set in a historic past and one film set in the Japanese present. And, uh, you know, when you're doing two films a year, good grief. And that's, that's, and, and, and films of substance that, that really do stand the test of time, even if you don't say, oh, this is a, a, a lasting masterpiece uh, for the ages. Well, come on, no, nobody cranked them out like that, you know, not certainly at that, at that rate of frequency. And so, uh, uh, you know, I'm pretty satisfied uh, just to have have this, and uh, and to find those moments of of enjoyment and and uh, and fascination that that it presents. Just because there's there's something different going on here than 
than what we typically think of in, in a Kurosawa movie where it's swords and samurai and Shakespeare adaptations and and large epic historic scales. Yep, totally agree. Yeah, and I, I think it's fun to look at where he's going. Like you said, he, he's making Rashomon uh, around this same time um, to also be, be released that, that year. And then we do get into The Idiot, which we'll be talking about yep. next time. Yep. And then we got Ikiru and Seven Samurai. Right. You know, I mean, all these things are right there, just about to be made. And, and then we, we will finish up the clip set with I Live in Fear from 1955. Um, so Another incredible a, a lot of performance that, because, you know, he so, he really does immerse himself into a character where he becomes almost recognizable as Toshiro Mifune, the way you, you think of him. So I am completely excited i have not yet rewatched those two films uh, the idiot and i live in fear but those are really i think two films that do approach that masterpiece level i mean they both have some some you know, areas of uh, the idiot in particular because of some uh, some censorship and some unfortunate uh, cuts that were forced upon kurosawa that have not been recovered uh, we'll, we'll get into those a little bit more, but I, I am really pumped up to get into those two films because I think they are probably as much as, as much as I enjoyed these three, those two really are sort of a breed apart and, and really do kind of elevate this set to, you know, probably essential territory if you want to get into, um, you know, what, what is an Eclipse series, uh, you know, must, must own, uh, for anybody who's, looking to maybe get the best of the best out of this particular line of films. Ooh, tantalizing our listeners. I, I hope so. I mean, I definitely <laughs> want people to come along with us for uh, this uh, final phase of our journey. We uh, we have three more episodes uh, planned, uh, this coming up episode on Kurosawa, and then the two of uh, Late Ozu. And then uh, for the foreseeable future, that'll be that. I mean, we've already got the August titles. There's no Eclipse series uh, announced up until that point, so we anticipate that we'll be visiting uh, late Ozu well before August rolls around. So, uh, anything else we want to add before we close this one out, Trevor? No, no, not for me. I, I've said everything that I had to say. Um, though, you know, again, just uh, hopefully people are enjoying these films and, and giving them all a shot. And in the meantime, you know, we do have, uh, if, if you're wanting to kind of um, go through Kurosawa in order um, with some of our thoughts. We did talk about Rashomon. Boy, was that even a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah, they, they, the months fly by. But yeah, yeah, Scott they do, and you on and the I, Criterion uh, Cast. got a Criterion yeah. Cast episode. So yeah, yeah. Oh, I, we've got pretty good coverage of this era of Kurosawa's filmmaking. So yeah, you got the first films episode. Uh, you've got Rashomon. Uh, I don't know if we ever did a Seven Samurai podcast or not, but certainly I've, I was never. I, on I've <laughs> covered all that stuff in my Criterion Reflections blog, so maybe uh, maybe we'll just throw a little uh, Kurosawa chronology into the show notes here. I still have to put those together uh, as we wrap up our recording. But anyways, we do thank you all, listeners, for uh, coming in on the journey. Hey, speaking of the Kurosawa chronology, I just I do want to give a little bit of a shout out to one of our listeners, a guy by the name of David Seely. Uh, he mentioned uh, his eagerness to check out our first films of Kurosawa 
discussion, and uh, he, uh, you know, somewhat mistakenly credited me and Rob Nishimura, the original host of this pod, co-host of this podcast, uh, and I, you know, gently corrected. So, oh, that was actually a Trevor episode, but he he had some pretty nice things to say about uh, about Kurosawa's work and and what he got out of a, a film that. Uh, you know, it was probably widely regarded as the most disposable of that first film set, but the the most beautiful. Uh, he found that one to be the most fascinating. I just want to read a few words from from his uh, his review there, and just and uh, again thank him for contributing to the discussion there. Even though these are films that that's a film that's not really part of this episode, but yeah, uh, he just uh, you know talked about how the you know the. Um, the film spotlights the issues of labor, class, and gender exploitation in wartime, uh, and spotlights the role that so- social conformity plays in enabling political violence and exploitation to thrive in society. But on the plus side, though the film is blatantly meant as a rallying cry to the workers to support the war effort, it demonstrates the key aspects of Kurosawa's work that appeal to him. Uh, empathy toward the protagonist, how he shows the humanity, struggles, sacrifices, and resilience of women in the face of the appalling work conditions they're compelled to endure make this film worthwhile. And so, yeah, I just, I really appreciated his thoughts and, and uh, comments. And I think those sentiments really do apply to what we see in these early post-war films as well, especially the first two about the, the resilience, about the persistence, about that sheer determination and not giving in to the despair and, and the uh, even the sense of humiliation and defeat that, present circumstances kind of pressed in upon uh, a lot of those folks in the audience. Uh, so, yeah, and it is just nice to sort of see even our, our old podcast uh, kind of being brought up for uh, conversation. I definitely uh, like the idea that these things live on a little bit, even after uh, Trevor and I have moved on to other films and other conversations. Uh, David also mentions 24 Eyes, a Kenosha film, uh, from later on in the 50s. Actually, it was the film that beat Seven Samurai for the Kinemo Jumbo yes, Award yes. as the Japan's outstanding film of, was it 1952 or 54 is what it was. Um, and so, yeah, 24 Eyes, I'll definitely uh, kind of link that in with uh, uh, No Regrets for Our Youth as one of those uh, you know very insightful throwbacks uh, to Japan's recent past uh, produced by filmmakers of that country. So again, just wanted to thank our, our listener, David Seeley for, for pitching in and, and, uh, and furthering my own thoughts and appreciation of these films. So with that, we will wrap up uh, episode 56 here. We'll see you back at episode 57 when we talk about Akira Kurosawa's The Idiot and I Live in Fear. Until then, take care, everybody. You know where to find us on Criterion Cast. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.